Guys, um, I just got to start by saying what a blessing it is to me to be able to do this. I really appreciate these opportunities because what it does for me personally is give me an opportunity to clarify my thinking on, on some things, give myself a little tune-up. So this, this message is a message to me. That's, that's what this is. And if there's any benefit to the rest of you, then great. That's fantastic. But um, I'm speaking to myself here. I don't know where you guys are at on your Christian journey. Probably some of you have only recently been saved in the last few years. I'm sure there's others of you that have uh, maybe grown up in the church. You've been, you've been a Christian for ages, and there's probably guys everywhere in between. And I don't know if your Christian experience is the same as mine, um, but let me give you a little glimpse of, of the history of my life in Christianity. In, in my life, there are seasons of, of real victory over sin. There are seasons of intimate fellowship with Christ. There are seasons when I'm getting new and fresh revelations out of his word, when I've got sweet fellowship with the brothers. And then I'm sad to admit that there's seasons of dryness and seasons of um, discouragement and disappointment and weariness and just tiredness, seasons when I feel like I can barely get out of bed in the morning and face another day. And and I assume some of you probably can relate to that, maybe not all of you, but I assume some of you have had seasons in, in your lives that were like that. Probably like me, some of you had spiritual goals for the previous year that maybe you, you didn't hit. Maybe you've had some disappointments along the way. Um, and in those seasons, there is a strong sensation, uh, temptation to just kind of check out. And by check out, I don't mean I'm going to chuck the faith, and, and now I'm going to be an atheist or a Buddhist or something like that. But, and I don't mean check out in the sense of I'm going to go and commit some sort of egregious, just in-your-face sin. But check out in the sense of I'm going to put the car in neutral because I'm tired, and I just, I'm going to just coast it in for a while and, and see what happens. I don't think that experience is unique to me because... The Bible, um, it's full of encouragements to stay engaged, right? Finish the race, fight the good fight. And it's, it's full of warnings against drifting away, against falling asleep, against becoming weary in that. And so there are these seasons where things are going well, and then there's seasons of life where we need to strengthen the things that remain and are about to die. And so that's what I want to talk about today, is strengthening the things that remain. That verse, that phrase is found in Revelation chapter three. And uh, you'll see I have a big blank page in the notes section. I didn't provide Chris with an outline, but if you'd like to have an outline, and if you'd like to follow along today, that's where we're gonna be. It's in Revelation chapter three, verses one through six, and verse by verse, that will be our outline. Um, But before we do that, I would just feel better if I could have a chance to pray. So if you'll join me. Heavenly Father God, uh, I truly, I truly am grateful for your word. I'm truly grateful for your spirit. I'm truly grateful for brothers that are iron sharpening iron, for spiritual fathers and mentors. And uh, God, I just pray for your spirit right now. I feel like a, I feel like a boy with loaves and a fish that's going to do very little, but you can make it into a meal. And so I pray that you do that today. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Okay. 
Revelation 3, this is the letter to the church at Sardis. It's one of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And um, there's a couple of ways to understand these letters. One is that these are seven literal letters written to literal churches in John's time of history. John wrote the book, Jesus inspired him, and he wrote these seven letters to seven churches. I think that's probably true, that's accurate. These were actual churches that existed in that time. These are actual messages delivered to these churches. Another thing people have observed about these churches is it's kind of interesting that um, starting with Ephesus and ending in Laodicea, they, they sort of track with timelines of church history. So you can see things happening in the, the global church, strengths and weaknesses that align with, with periods of church history and these letters. And if that's the case, um, the commentators would say that Sardis represents the age of the church around the Reformation, for whatever that's worth. And then the final way you can look at these letters is just what's the personal application to me, right? All scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, instruction, reproof, training in righteousness that we may be equipped. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. And so that's, that's really my main focus today is uh, what, if any, is the message that I can apply to my life out of the church in Sardis? But in order to get the impact of that, in order to really grasp what this was like, I want you to try to take yourself back 2,000 years, okay? And just imagine for a minute that you guys are members of the first church of Sardis. And basically all of the disciples have probably died now with the exception of John, and he's exiled on a little island 50 miles off the coast, but you get word that the risen Lord, Jesus himself, has given an inspiration to the last living apostle, John, and in that is a message specific to you, to Sardis. Like, that's, that's a pretty exciting thing. I imagine they were, they were stoked to hear about this. Jesus, through John, has written a letter to us, and so finally, one day the messenger arrives in Sardis with the letter and uh, to read it to the assembly, probably a pretty large assembly. And so he's got it there in front of him and he, he says to the angel of the church in Sardis and they say, yeah, that's us, this is great, this is exciting. Write this, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, okay, we're ready. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. That's right, we do. All the other churches, Asia Minor, they want to be like us. We've got a name that we are alive. In fact, we are going to put together a training program about how to be more like the Christians in Sardis because we're just that awesome. And the messenger continues, but you are dead. Wait a minute. Um, back it up, Mr. Messenger. I think you screwed up that last sentence. Let's try that again. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Well, crap. That's bad news. That is really, really bad news. All the other churches so far, Jesus has at least given a few good things about that church before he goes to the, the tune-up points, the points that they need help in. But there's nothing good here. He just says, you're just dead. You're a dead church. Imagine if that's you now. Imagine Jesus comes to you and says, you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. People think you're something, but you're dead. You're dead inside. And, and that's 
one old preacher put it, a morgue with a steeple. It's not my title, just in full disclosure. I read that somewhere and I thought, oh, that's perfect. That's exactly what it is. It's a morgue with the steeple. And he said, Christ's name held, his word read, his truth owned, himself forgotten. They had a great reputation that they were alive, but the reality didn't match up with the reputation. And it's possible at one point that maybe they were. Maybe they were a thriving church. Maybe they were a very gospel-centric, spirit-filled church, but it was gone now. It was, just, it was just an empty shell. Other churches looked at Sardis and thought, you're good, you've got a name that you're alive, but for their history and their activity, they were dead inside. And I don't have to tell you guys that as you look around, this is not at all unlike many of the churches that we have today, right? Maybe they were alive once, maybe not. Maybe they always had an undue focus on form over function. Maybe they were pursuing the sin of Babel. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. We've got to make a name. If we don't have a name, we can't get the bodies in the door, right? So we'll do whatever it takes to make a name. We're the church that has the awesome lasers. We're the church with the best band. We're the church that has the homosexual pastor. We're the church that never uses the sin word. Whatever we have to do, as long as we make a name for ourselves. And, uh, yeah, they pack them in, right? Sunday after Sunday into these arena-sized churches. Whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And guys, that's a tragedy. That, that, that is truly a tragedy. Um, but it's easy, right? It's easy for me to point fingers at an institution and say, well, here's all your problems. It's not that it's not worth doing, but what I'm interested in today is taking the lens, turning it 180 degrees, and say, okay, but what about here? Is there any way that this is true in my life? Is there any way that I am at risk of falling into the sin of the church at Sardis. So that's what we're gonna look at. As I thought about this, I thought there's probably, and there may be more, but there's probably at least three ways that Sardis could have gained a name that they were alive while they were actually dead. So I'll go through those. Number one, it may be that um, just because the instructions of scripture, because the commandments of the Bible were so at odds with their pagan culture with their desires that they just, they did what so many other churches do and they synthesize the two. They say, well, we don't, we don't want to chuck God. We like having God in the background, but we also don't want to change our lives. And so we're just going to create a new version of Christianity. It's, the, it's Sardis Christianity. We, we get to keep all of our pagan stuff and we get to keep God and, um, and we're good to go. And so in doing that, they look like things are moving because they're, they're very serious about it all. But there's no life there. And guys, if you want to build a really big church really fast, this is probably the easiest way to do it. Show up on Sunday with an awesome stage production. Preach some pop culture psychology that's thinly veiled in a Bible verse. And you'll grow that thing and you'll have a name that you are alive. And you can see that in individuals as well. They find Jesus, but then kind of as Jerry was talking about last night, they realize I didn't, really, I didn't really know what I was signing up for when, when I said yes to Christ. I didn't realize this was going to be as hard as it is. And so there's, there's habits they have they don't want to get rid of. There's desires that they're not willing to sacrifice. There's relationships that might be at risk if they stay committed to Christ. And so not wanting to give those things up, but also wanting to keep their fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. And so they say, well, how do I, how do I tweak this? And then they read, 
you are free in Christ. And they go, oh, good, I'm free. I'm free in Christ. And so I can distort the scriptures and I can come up with this version where I can pursue all my own desires and still claim grace and still claim Christ at the same time. And guys, if you do that passionately, if you do that with conviction and with a smile on your face, there are a lot of Christians that will affirm you and say, good job, you, you are alive. You are a thriving Christian. But you'll be dead. That's one possibility. Here's the other one. Another possibility is that the entire Christian identity was always just posturing, that there was never anything there. That's, it's possible. Um, and you guys have probably known guys like this. This is sort of the go along to get along crowd. And maybe it was, uh, maybe you married a, a wife and, and she said, you know, I think we should have our kids in the church and Sunday school. And you think, well, whatever. It's easier to just do that than have a fight about it. Or maybe you're just trying to appease your folks, your parents, or somebody else in your life. Maybe somehow you got into the church, and now it's kind of your social group. You never really believed any of it, but you put on the dog and pony show because you don't want to disrupt your social status. You've got a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And then there's the third one, and honestly, this is the one that I personally suspect that Sardis succumbed to, and this is the one that scares me the most, and that is living on the residuals of your past Christian credit. There was a season in life maybe when you had a zeal for God, when you were truly committed to loving him, committed to evangelism, committed to other people, when, you know, when your heart truly broke for the lost, when you, when you honestly and sincerely mourned with those who mourned and you honestly and sincerely rejoiced with those who rejoiced, but something happened such that it's just not the case anymore. Uh, maybe it was a tragedy, maybe it was a loss, maybe it was a betrayal, and maybe it was just the relentless daily waves of a fallen world beating against your foundations and just wearing you down by attrition. But however it came to be, you end up finding your place, yourself in this place where you're just, you're simply going through the motions and people look at you and they think, oh yeah, that guy's a good Christian because remember when he did that thing back then? He's a, he's a good guy, he's a good Christian. And you can, you can deceive yourself into thinking that way too. It's easy to rationalize and say, well, I'm not, I'm not as engaged with Christ any, anymore. I'm not, I'm not super like pushing that hard, but I, I did some things. I took some risks for Christ at one point. There was one day I, I prayed really hard for a half day back eight years ago. But you're not doing it now. You're living on spiritual credit. And, and you, you think to yourself, as long as I just, I don't screw up too visibly. You know, I keep my sins at the, the under the water line and we keep the above the water line ones hidden. Then I can maintain this name that I'm alive. Even though you know that there's deadness inside. Now, these three descriptions could hit you guys in, in any of number of different ways, and I recognize that. There could be some of you that say, yeah, you know what, one of those, um, that's, that's right, that's exactly where I'm at. That's right where I'm at. And there could be some of you that say, you know what, by the grace of God, I, I really don't relate to any of those, in which case, praise God, man, that's fantastic. And then there, there could be some of you that are in the middle, and you say, you know, I'm not... Um, I'm not really, I'm not completely checked out of sincere Christian faith, but if I'm honest with myself, I'm getting tired, and it's getting harder, and I'm slowing down, and my trajectory, instead of heading upward, is drifting downward. <clears throat> and 
And so to that end, I think that the, the letter to Sardis, wherever you're at, is a warning to all of us. I think it's valuable to all of us. It just may be more imminent for some of us than for others. So let's look at it together. Revelation 3, 1, if you've got your Bible or your Bible app. To the angel of the church at Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Um, Before we get into the meat of that, I know that Revelation is a book that's rich with imagery, that's rich with symbolism, and um, I don't want to get too sidetracked by that because my focus really is what's the message here, but I also don't want any of those things to be a distraction to you as we try to get into the message. So let me just super quickly um, give you three thoughts on angels, spirits, and stars in this first sentence here, okay? To the angel at the church at Sardis. That word angel, it, it literally means messenger. It was the Greek word messenger. It kind of came to mean angel, but um, it can also just mean quite literally a messenger that takes a message from one place to another. So there's a couple of understandings here. One, it could be that God has appointed specific angels over specific churches. That's a possibility. I think uh, more people probably think that it's referring to actual messengers, the, the literal messenger that's taking the message from John to these churches. And other people think maybe it means the pastor or the elder or the church father of that town. It doesn't really matter right now for our purposes in that it doesn't change the message, okay? To he who has the seven spirits. So in the Bible, as you guys know, seven is the representation of fullness, of completeness, of perfection. He's not saying here God has seven separate, distinct, individual spirits that are all going their own way and doing their own thing. He's got one full, complete spirit, and that spirit has seven attributes. Um, Some people think they're identified in Isaiah 11, if you ever want to check that out. Seven stars, that's a bit more straightforward, because Jesus tells John in Revelation 1.20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And so, For our purposes today, just so we don't get sidelined by any of these things, I'm going to paraphrase this by saying, to the messenger at the church in Sardis, write this. He who has the Holy Spirit of God and who holds the representatives of his churches in the right hand says this. All right? Comfortable with that? Moving on. Here's what he says. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. A couple observations about this. Number one, Jesus knows your deeds. Surprise. You can fool others. Um, You can fool your family. You can fool your friends. You can fool your wife. You can fool me. I can fool you. But Jesus knows our deeds. He knows the deeds that we do in darkness. He knows the deeds that we do in the light for dark reasons. And by that I mean who we trying to please. Are we doing our deeds to please men or are we doing our deeds to please God? Because we play to an audience of one, guys. If you're living to please men, that is a dangerous game. You are, in, you are in, uh, in dangerous waters when you do that. And you will certainly, without fail, make poor decisions if you're, you're planning your life based on pleasing men instead of pleasing God. And Jesus is very clear on this throughout the Bible, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. You guys remember, um, beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus knows where your hope is. Is your hope to have a good name among the brethren, among the men, or is your hope to have 
a good name before God. And that's an easy concept to understand, but honestly, guys, that is a terribly hard concept to put into practice. And I'll just be totally honest and just put all my cards on the table here. I wrestle with that even, even right now in, in this, in putting together a talk, because like, nobody wants to stand up here and have everybody think you're a total idiot, right? I've got, I've got spiritual fathers in the room. I don't want them to think that I'm a, a, you know, an idiot. I've got my son in the room. I don't want him to think I'm a moron anymore than he might. <laughs> but you put together a message that way. If, it, if it's, well, how, do I, how can I be crafty? How can I be clever so that I'm, I'm pleasing people, so that I look smart? Then this is rubbish. This is just garbage at that point. It, it only has value if it's, God, what is it? What is it you want? What do you have for me to say? Am I spending more effort trying to be clever or trying to just pray and get into your word and see what's the truth, what's the truth that you have for me in this message here? That's one example. Um, you, you, you probably, if you're married, you've probably experienced this in certain ways at home. And, and I don't know exactly what, but maybe, maybe you decided you wanted to do a family Bible study, but then you thought, oh, my wife probably wasn't think I'm smart enough to do that, and she probably would know that I'm a hypocrite, and so being afraid of her, you, you make the decision not to do it. You had the conviction, but you don't do it. Or you show up at work, you work with a bunch of pretty rough pagan guys, and, and that's okay, but then they start making some lewd jokes, and they're laughing, and what do you do? Are you going to laugh along with them? Are you going to participate in that, or are you going to slip away? Are you trying to please men, or are you trying to please God? I've always uh, often told my kids that uh, trying to please men is about the worst kind of prison there is because you take it with you everywhere you go. And, and it just locks you up from being who God wants you to be. And the truth is everybody's only concerned about themselves anyway. They don't really care about you, but God does. So why are we trying to please men instead of trying to please God? All right, back to verse one. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And that is bad news, as I said. It's not a good condition to find yourself in. But there's good news also, and that is that God is in the business of bringing dead things back to life, right? The prodigal can be restored. You remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke, Luke 15? Bring the fatted calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and he is found, and they began to celebrate. So that's, that's the kind of deadness that we're talking about here. It's it's not an unresurrectable deadness. The prodigal was restored. In each of the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus identifies himself in a different way. He, he applies to himself different attributes, and those attributes um, relate to his message to each of the churches. And so in Sardis here, he describes himself as the one who has the spirit of God, and that's a good thing because that's really what they need, right? That's how dead things are brought to life. Genesis 2, we're a ball of clay until God breathes the spirit of life into us. A, a dead person can't bring himself back to life. He's got to have the spirit to do that, and that's, that's what they need. They can't get there on their own. But then we're left with this dilemma, because this is often the case in the Bible, where the sovereignty of God, on the one hand, works in conjunction with the responsibility of man on the other hand. And Philippians 2.12 is a good example of that. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, 
for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You guys, me, work out your salvation. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who is at work. And you go, well, which is it? And God says, yep. And so Jesus gives five instructions to Sardis. This is the way I want you to work out your salvation. I'll take care of my end. Don't, don't worry about that. But here's, here's what you need to do, Sardis. And I think these are very instructive. They were to me anyway. And so that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time is on these five instructions. The five are wake up, strengthen the things that remain, remember what you received and heard, Keep it and repent. And we'll go through those one at a time if you didn't get them. So the first one is wake up. Um, wake up, that's the logical first step here, right? You can't repent, you can't remember, you can't strengthen, you can't do any of these things if you are sleeping. You've got to hear the call of God rousing you up first, waking you up, saying you've, you've drifted off, man, wake it up. This, this phrase, wake up, this word, it's repeated 30 times in the New Testament. The word is Gregorio, and sometimes it's translated as wake up, sometimes as uh, be alert, sometimes as keep watch, but it, it's in there over and over and over again, and I think that's telling that God knows that we have a propensity as Christians to become lax, to let down our guard, to become weary, to get beat up by the world and drift off into a complacent slumber, and that's when we're vulnerable. That's when we're at the biggest risk. And as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of the, uh, the, the account of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You guys remember that? So it's right, after, um, it's right after the Last Supper. Jesus has shared his last meal with his disciples. He's instituted communion. He knows, he knows what's coming, right? He knows that the crucifixion is just around the corner. And so after the meal... He says, let's all, let's all go up to the Mount of Olives because I, I got to spend some time praying. And as they get out there, he says to his disciples, you will all fall away from me tonight. Because of me, you guys are going to all fall away tonight. And good old Jesus, good old Peter, he's, he's fired up, right? And he says, though all of them, all these other schlub disciples you have fall away, I will never fall away. He's so brazen, right? And Jesus says, oh, Peter, for the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me tonight. And Peter says this in verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Remember, these are, these are his beloved disciples. They spent three years with him, ministering with him, traveling with him, eating with him. They're close to him. Imagine a time in your life, take yourself back and just think, what, what was the moment or the season in my life where I felt the closest to God, where I was all in, where every heartbeat of my heart beat for Christ? That's where they're at. I will die for you until verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. Gregorio, remain here. Keep awake with me. I need you to stay awake. I need to know that someone's got my back, okay? Because I'm, I'm about to face something huge, and I need some time in the Word, but I just I don't want to be alone. I want someone to stay awake with me to keep watch. 
39, going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me for one hour? Watch, wake up, Gregorio. Wake up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and he went away and he prayed a third time saying the words again. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. What if he said that to you? Are you still sleeping? Behold, the hour is at hand. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How quickly we can move from full devotion to Christ into complacent slumber, huh? There's many a, many a man that started his Christian journey as a blazing fire and ended it as a flickering candle that eventually just gets blown out by the faintest little breeze and no one even notices. So that's a warning to us. It seems to be the story of the church at Sardis, and I think it's a story for us. Wake up, be on the alert, keep watch, don't let your guard down. That's command number one. Command number two is verse two, Revelation three, verse two. Strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. So evidently there's... There's some faint glowing hope left in Sardis, some dusky ember covered in ash that's about to burn itself out, but which, if the spirit breathes life on it, could be fanned back into flame. It could be brought back to life. Whatever that was, it was about to die if they didn't strengthen it. And as I thought through this one, trying to think, what's the visual on this? What came to my mind was uh, Jesus talking about the vine and the branches in John 15. In John 15, 5, he says, I, Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so here's Jesus, he's the vine, right? He's the trunk of this, of this giant vine. And all of the branches have their life by virtue of being connected into the vine. You, you, without the vine, there's no life, right? So if, if through disease or through pests or through a storm, something happens and, and, it, and it breaks the branch, so it's just dangling there now. It's broken off of the vine. There's no longer life flowing through that. That's, it's about to be a dead branch, and there's two options for that kind of a branch. Number one, since a broken branch will bear no fruit, then eventually the vine dresser, that's God the Father, he's gonna come along and he's gonna take it off. John 15, six, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and he withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. A branch that's left undetended is gonna wither, it's gonna die, it's gonna be burned up. The other option is you can strengthen that connection to the vine. Whatever you know, little fragments of bark, we're still holding that thing on. If you pull the branch back up to its abiding position, you wrap it up tight with tape, you hold it there, you secure it, eventually that life starts flowing back into the branch again. That, 
that bond, that joint, that union can be healed. In fact, it can even be strengthened after that if it's just put back into the abiding position. So how do we strengthen the things that remain? You abide in the vine. You secure yourself as strongly as you can to it. You, you grab onto Christ and you hold him as tight as you can. And I, for those of you that are dads, you remember when your kids are little, my, my daughter, she gets so scared of things. And um, when she's scared, man, it's like, clamp on, vice grip, right? Like nails in the flesh, clamp on. There's nothing that could ever pry her off if she's frightened. That's, that's what we're talking about in abiding. Cling on to Christ with everything you have, every ounce of strength that you have. You gotta get that union back together, strengthen what remains so that that bond is healed, that life flows through you and you get, you get stronger and healthier so that you don't break off again in the next storm. Okay, um, Strengthen the things that remain which were about to die for. So there's a reason here. For I have found your deeds not completed in the sight of my God. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he established beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has created good works for you to do. He said, here's a guy, here's the plan. I've got these works for this guy to do, and just parenthetically, guys, this is an incredible grace. He, prefer, he, he prepares works ahead of time for us. He empowers us to do those works, and then he rewards us for doing the work. Just think through that. Here's, here's a job for you, Al. Now, here you go, I'm gonna help you do it. There you go, you did it. And now here's the reward for that. That's a really good deal. That is a really good deal that we have there. But um, too often, and it seems to be the case in Sardis, we end up saying, well, I did some of the works. I did, I did that for a while. I did a lot of them, but I, I'm tired. I'm tired of staying engaged. I'm tired of, of pushing hard through all of this. I, I just, I can't keep doing this over and over and over again. And so I'm just gonna hope that the works I did in the past, uh, and now I'm gonna coast, but maybe that was good enough. And Jesus says, no, no. I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Christian life is not a sprint. Christian life is a marathon. It's a long race. And you gotta finish the race. And oh, by the way, not just finish the race, you've gotta run in such a way that you may win. That's a whole other level of effort, isn't it? That's athlete level. The big difference between athletes and fans. Fan says, I'm part of the community. I'm part of the team. I wear the t-shirt. I buy the merchandise. I love it. I'm a, I'm a big fan. But when the game's over, what do they do? They walk out of the stadium and they go back to their lives. The athletes can't be so nonchalant. Right? They got to be careful. They got to watch what they eat and what they, uh, how they sleep and, and what they do. And they got to train and they got to build endurance and they've got to build muscle and they've got to be prepared they've got to have a strategy in place so that when when it happens they're ready to engage they're they're participating they're not spectators they're participators and so here's the thing i don't know how many athletes are left in in christianity seems like there's a lot of christian fans that'll wear the t-shirt buy the merchandise got my wwjd mug right here, and they're, they're doing good, but then 
when the game ends, they all file out of the church on Sunday and go out of the stadium, go back to their regular lives. And um, we can't afford to be like fans. We've got to be like the athletes. Fans fall asleep. This may be a surprise to some of you, but if you don't believe me, just visit any home on Thanksgiving afternoon. Fans fall asleep. Athletes have got to stay engaged. You still have deeds to complete. There are people in your life that God has for you to witness to. There are people in your life that God has for you to be disciplers. People in your life God has for you to be discipled by. There are situations in your life that God may prepare for you to be in deep and desperate prayer for others. Maybe he's called you to fasting. I don't know what it is. I don't know what your works are. I just know that he's got works for you and they're not complete. So strengthen what remains. Strengthen your spiritual disciplines. Strengthen your time in the word. Strengthen your time in prayer. Strengthen your time in evangelism. Strengthen your time with your brothers. Strengthen your gratitude for all that Christ has done for you. It's cool that it's 2020, guys. It's a whole new decade, right? It's a big number. Um, Old things have passed away and new things have come. There's no reason that this next decade can't be the best spiritual decade of your life. I don't care if you're 18 or 80. Strengthen what remains and let's see what God will do. The next two commands, number three and four, these go together. Number three is this, remember what you received and heard. And number four is keep it. Remember what you received and heard and keep it. What exactly was that? It doesn't tell us, but I think we can get a pretty good idea if we go look at 1 Corinthians 15. And I say that because Paul says almost the same thing to the Corinthian church there. Here's what he says, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, remember of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received. So what did they receive? They received the gospel. And in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast, if you keep it. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So I would remind you of the gospel. You received it, hold fast to it, keep it, so that you have not believed in vain. And then he goes on in the next verse to just tell us briefly, here's what the gospel is. I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So we've got to remember that. We've got to remember the message of the gospel and hold fast to it. One of the scariest things, I think, in Christianity is when the good news becomes old news. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but um, if the good news becomes old news, it's time for some self-evaluation, time to do a little checkup there. Hebrews 2.1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it, lest we fall asleep. If the good news seems like old news, it's because you and I are not paying close enough attention to it. Just, just remember, guys, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were bound for an eternity in hell. And even now, some of you may be thinking, yeah, I know what you're about to say. I've heard this 10 million times. And that's, that's the danger, right? In its familiarity, it loses its impact. But we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were bound for an eternity in hell. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made us alive together with him 
He made us fellow heirs with Christ. He's given us eternal reward. And if we are drifting away from that, if we are drifting off to sleep, then we are not paying close enough attention. And it's time to wake up, strengthen the things that remain, remember the gospel, and hold fast to it. I think also the remember here points to what has God done individually? What has he done in your own life? Remember what you received. What, what, what did you receive from Christ? Maybe it was freedom from a sin. Maybe it was peace from a, a lifetime of anxiety. Remember what you received and hold on to that. And finally, the fifth one is repent. That's, that's the logical outcome of the preceding four commands, right? Sleeping man can't repent. Um, but once you've been awakened, once you've strengthened the things that remain, once you remember what Christ have done to you and you hold fast to that, when you remember that in spite of all that he's done, that you've fallen asleep, that you've ceased striving after him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, then that's the only plausible response that's left, right? Repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. If I've taken God for granted, if I've been disengaged from the pursuit of holiness and then after waking up from that, there's sorrow there, there's true godly sorrow, that's a really good thing because that produces repentance and that leads to salvation. And guys, God is astonishingly merciful and astonishingly patient. Let me read you, a, this is an incredible passage out of Joel 2. Um, and, and this comes right after God saying there's impending judgment, there's discipline coming your way. But then he says this in 2.12, yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And then there's this, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Isn't that incredible? God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And if we turn, who knows if he'll relent and even leave a blessing behind him. I think that's amazing. On the other hand, if we don't, then we get a warning here in Revelation 3. Back to Sardis. Revelation 3, verse 3. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come. Whenever the Bible uh, is talking about a thief coming, it refers to judgment, it refers to, to something that is not good, whether that's a local spiritual judgment or an eternal judgment. Whatever it is, it is not a good thing because the thief comes to steal, to break in, to destroy, to kill. And um, I don't know, sometimes you can read too much into these things, but it's possible that this may have landed particularly hard on the church in Sardis just because of their, their town's history. The town was built on this huge acropolis, just a like, sheer mountain, and then the town was on top. And because of that, they didn't even have to have walls on a lot of the sides because they just had these sheer cliffs. But there was a goat path up the backside of the mountain that led to a little back gate. And twice in the city's uh, history, once in 549 BC, Cyrus of Persia, and then once in 195 BC, Antiochus led their armies in the dead of night while the people were sleeping up the back goat path. Guard that should have been guarding the gate was asleep. 
all the people were asleep. The armies came in and they destroyed the city. And the people thought, we have a reputation of being an impenetrable city. And so they let their guards down and they were destroyed because of it. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come to you. What time is it? All right, let's finish the passage here. Verse four, but you have a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. In every age, guys, God's got his remnant. He's got his faithful few, those who aren't being lulled into complacency or lulled into compromise, and we gotta make sure that we are among them, that we are part of that remnant, that we don't soil our garments by giving in to the sins of the world, falling asleep just after professing fidelity to Christ. I'm with you, Jesus, and then drifting off into a complacent slumber right after that. Remember, we play to an audience of one. Our name before men is irrelevant. The only name that matters is the one that's here in this verse, the one that Jesus will confess before the Father and his angels, saying, this is one of ours. This name, this guy is an overcomer. He didn't fall asleep. He's he's one of our men. And um, I think think Revelation uses the word overcomer intentionally. It's it's not the go-alongers. That's just not how life works. It's not just a simple path. You have to overcome something. And you have to overcome a lot of things. This life, if we get to the end, it's by overcoming. And that's why he refers to the overcomers. And it's hard work. And it's not, it's not getting any easier, at least not in my experience. Let's, I mean, ask some of these other guys, but it doesn't seem like it gets any easier. And um, th- this world, guys, this broken world, it's, it's pushing at you with all the force of Niagara Falls. And if you're not pushing back against that, if you drift off to sleep, you just, you're gonna get swept away and wiped out. And for those of you that have wives and children, it's, that responsibility is just amplified because you've got these lives that God has entrusted into your stewardship. And your job as a man and as a husband and as a father is to say, okay, look, family, I get it, okay? I see what you see that everybody else around us and everything we see is all going that way, okay? But we're going that way. And so get in line behind me and I'll be in front. I'm gonna take the hits. I'll break the waves, but we're headed upstream. And then as you do that, you're keeping a sharp eye out for like-minded guys, the few committed guys you can find that say, yeah, us too, we're, we're going this way too. And then and you link arms with those guys. That's what, that's what this kind of an event is like. You say, brother, let's do this together. And that way, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm prone to fall asleep. I'm prone to drift off. And so when that happens, yank me, man, wake me up, all right? I don't, I don't wanna drift off. And I'll do the same thing for you because we've got works to still do. We're not there. We got, we got a long journey and it's gonna be a, a hard one, but we gotta get there. And so you press on, you stay awake. You strengthen the things that remain. You remember what you received. You keep it. And then when you stumble and and you trip and you get your knees muddy, you repent. You repent. You get cleaned up and you keep trucking forward until finally, hopefully, someday you can say like Paul, I've fought the good race, fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. 
and now there is laid up for me a crown of victory. I don't know about you guys, but man, don't you long to be able to say that with sincerity? Like that's, that's a great fear in my life, that I wouldn't be able to say that honestly. Don't you want that? Like, what, a, what a beautiful thing at the end of your life to say, I did it, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I kept the faith, and now there's laid up for me this crown of victory. <laughs> you can get us there, guys. I'm going to stop, unless anybody has any questions. Number five is repent. Anybody at all? Then I think we can eat. Congratulations.